Last time we were together, we saw, or at least in Matthew, we saw that humility looks like something. As, as God's little children, humility before him first is just that. It's, it's humility before the face of the Lord. It's seeing who he is, his greatness, his splendor, and it's admitting that we are like children before him. But then you remember we saw humility also is exhibited in the face of temptation. Humility in the face of temptation is admitting that we are weak when it comes to temptation, that we are prone to it, that we are not strong enough all the while to overcome it, that we must take it seriously, both in our lives and in the way we treat others. And then finally, we saw humility in the face of mercy. And we saw that great parable of how God, like a shepherd, seeks out his sheep, how he's not willing that one of them would perish, but yet he is intimately and wonderfully concerned with each one of his children, and that we should not despise one of them. And then we talked about that. What does it mean to despise one of God's children? And I'll just go through these quickly. We despise God's children by overlooking them in favor of a more important person. We despise God's children by neglecting to care for them. We despise God's children by ridiculing them. We despise God's children by taking advantage of their weakness. And we also saw we despise God's children when we reject somebody who lovingly corrects us. And it's that one which sort of leads us into the next passage as we pick up in verse number 15 this morning in Matthew. We could really sum up this passage in Matthew 18, verse 15, with with the opening words, if your brother sins against you. By the way, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles today, um, if you need help finding it, it's on page number 7. 73. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, if you'd like one, that can be your gift today from our church. But uh, Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, that sums up the rest of what we're going to read in Matthew 18. That is the case. The first half of the chapter, the idea was don't tempt someone to sin. Don't don't be a stumbling block in the way of somebody else. But here, Jesus has moved beyond that idea to the fact that the sin has taken place. Somebody has sinned against you. Your brother or sister, they have fallen in that temptation. And if that's the case, what do we do? What do we do? Now, the verses starting in verse 15 and really first through verse 20 are usually referred to in with a reference of church discipline. Now, that can be a scary term. I'll just admit that. Uh, it can be a misused term. But it also can be an ignored term as well. And we don't have time this morning to talk about every kind of case where these principles are, are either misused or misapplied or ignored, but we will take our definition from Jesus as we read through the passage but in big picture language, there are really two ditches that, that, that we can fall into when it comes to this passage. There are instances where we just totally ignore it, where there's no attempt at all to do anything like what Jesus teaches here. 
But on the other side, there are instances where it is, it's overused or misused to make a mountain out of every little sin and failure that comes up. Or worse, it's used to promote things that aren't actually sin, but just when somebody goes against our preferences. Now, this term is sometimes even called excommunication, which is even a scarier term, isn't it? But it's really, these things, church discipline, excommunication, are really just terms that have been coined to describe the last step in Jesus' words here. And whatever we call these principles, we must not ignore them, but we also must see, and I hope you will see this today, that the heart behind these words is not a desire to exclude or to put people out, but rather the heart behind them is to seek forgiveness and repentance and restoration. And if you have an outline on the back of your bulletin this morning, you'll see uh, here's the main idea for this morning is this. Just as sin can be felt by the whole body, so Christ calls the whole body to seek for restoration and forgiveness. Let's pick it up in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 18 and read for now through verse 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Before we go any further in this passage, let's pray that the Lord would help us as we look at it. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for the truths of scripture. Thank you that you've given us such practical advice, such practical wisdom on how we deal with this. Lord, we have all been in the case of either an instance where we've sinned against our brother or sister or where somebody has sinned against us. And Lord, so much chaos can ensue if we don't follow you in this regard. So help us to see your heart here. And when necessary, Lord, even to apply it for the outcome of your glory. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So the first thing we'll see here is very simple, and I've, I've made the points in the case of, of these hypothetical questions. And the first is, if your brother sins against you. And as I mentioned, this is the definitional verse for the whole passage. If your brother sins against you. And I would say that it's this is hypothetical, but it's also very probable. Just practically speaking, it is very likely that at some point this will happen, and you will be on one side or the other of this equation. Now, you might be thinking right now, I hope I'm never on one, the, the wrong side of the equation of church discipline. But even in that, there's an assumption that all of these steps are so serious that It's to be despised. No, these are wonderful and merciful steps. I hope we'll see that. First, we see if your brother, that is 
That defines the scope of this. This is talking about brothers and sisters in the Lord. You may be able to apply some of the principles in this passage to those who are unbelievers if they wrong you or sin against you, but the weight of this leans on the idea that both parties are followers of the Lord. They have his teaching, the scriptures in mind, and they have his spirit. That's the scope. If your brother, or we can say if your brother or sister sins against you, you can only lovingly correct an unbeliever with scripture to a certain point before they simply say, I don't believe that. And then you have nothing to base your interaction on. You're on different terms at that point. Now, interestingly, that's where Jesus is going after the third step. But more on that later. So if your brother sins, and uh, the word here is the basic word for sin, the the big idea is a a state of, of sinfulness against God. It's as the Apostle Paul defines it, falling short of God's glory. It's, a, it's an overwhelming desire for, for our glory or our good above what God has revealed. And in a big way, we're all born into sin. The world is a sinful place. From the fall of Adam, the first man, all are in sin. But the word here is used of a specific instance. There is an instance where somebody has disobeyed God's ways There has been a specific instance that a person has clearly ignored God's law, his principles. And it's important that we define it this way because these principles are not given to us to use if a brother or sister just bothers us or just rubs us the wrong way. Uh, These principles aren't intended to be used if, if you're just offended because your brother or sister has a different opinion than you about something else. No, this is an instance where it's it's clear. A person has wronged you. They have disobeyed the Lord, and it's been specific against you. That's the next part. That's important also. This is an instance where the specific sin is public enough or pointed enough that it directly affects somebody else. For instance, in a marriage, adultery directly affects the other person. It is a sin against God, but it's really a sin against that spouse. Another example, if you lie to somebody, that is a sin against God, but it is a sin against that person. You've not been truthful to them. Stealing from somebody is a sin against the Lord, but it's a sin against that person. You've taken their possessions. Harming someone physically or berating somebody verbally without cause, it's a sin against that person. And the question might come up, well, what if my brother or sister sins and it's not against me? What do I do in that case? Well, here there are two principles. For instance, Paul in Galatians 6 tells us that if a man is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual should seek to restore him. That's the goal here as well. It's still imperative that brothers and sisters look out for one another and that they come alongside each other to seek restoration when there is a clear fault. But sometimes, on the other hand, there are minor offenses that we simply must overlook. There is a reason why the scripture tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes there aren't things worth bringing up. Sometimes we know that 
somebody is in a rough spot, somebody has had a bad day, or we might say, I know them, that's not their character. I'm going to just cover that for now. But that being said, if your brother sins against you, and it is serious enough that it does require mending, there is a rift caused because of it, then here are the principles that Jesus gives. It's very simple. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, I cannot stress how important these principles are if they're actually applied well, how they would eradicate all kinds of evil that takes place. For instance, one, it would eradicate gossip. If somebody sins against you and you simply spread that offense around trying to gain sympathy as the victim, you are not acting as Jesus has told us here. If someone comes to you, for instance, and says, well, so-and-so has really offended me. In love, your first question should be to that person, well, have you talked to them about it? Have you, have you talked to that person about this? Now, you may have heard me say that to you. If you've brought some kind of a complaint to me, I've probably told you that. Have you talked to the person about it? Because I don't need to be involved until that's taken place. This is one of the beautiful principles about Jesus' teaching. Uh, sin does not always have to turn into broad and public knowledge. If it is dealt with according to God's principles, and if there's forgiveness and repentance, that's as far as the topic needs to spread. And this is the principle here, that the circle of effect of this sin should stay as small as possible. But there's another temptation that this principle can eradicate as well, and that's the temptation to bitterness. Sometimes we're sinned against and we're either embarrassed or, or nervous or scared, or maybe, maybe we're too prideful and we won't go to our brother or sister. We might say something like, he's the one in the wrong, he needs to come to me. Or we might say something like, I don't know what's gonna happen if I bring this up. And we tell ourselves that we're just going to grit and bear it or we're just gonna get over it. But usually what happens when we say that is rather than getting over it, we become bitter. And every time we see that person, we remember the offense. We wonder, do they know that I know? We wonder, would they apologize if I confronted them? And we stew about it. And without even intending this, that relationship is always stilted. There's always a limp in that relationship because there is something still between you. And Jesus' words here are wonderful. If you go to that brother or sister, and if they listen, you have gained your brother. Now that's a real admission, that, that when sin takes place between two parties, there is a real rift there. There is real damage that has been caused. And at the same time, when restoration takes place, there is a real repair. We don't have to go on in bitterness or stubbornness. 
And we certainly can't go on and gossip because we've gained our brother. We've gone to them. We've lovingly told them that they've hurt us. And we believe they've sinned against the Lord and against us. And with God's grace, the hope would be that they would say, my goodness, you're right. I am so sorry. Or even they might say, you know, I know I sinned against you. I've been ignoring that. I've been stubborn about it. But I'm glad you confronted me. I needed to repent of that. You don't know how your loving dealing with a brother who sinned against you can be a grace of the Lord in that person's life to bring them to a point where they where they see. This principle coincides perfectly with the, the last words we read from Jesus because the father is not willing that any of his little ones would perish. God doesn't want any of his children to wallow in sin. He wants them to be restored. And when they are restored, as we read in verse 13, he rejoices over them. And so if we gain our brother back, we should rejoice as well. Now that's the intention, that this instance would stop at level one. That's the best case scenario. Somebody offends you, they sin against you, you go to them in love, and by the grace of God, they, they repent, they listen, and you've gained your brother, and that's it. However, since things always don't work out the first time, and the best of intentions are not always played out, Jesus goes on. Verse number 16, but, but if he does not listen, if he does not respond appropriately, that's, that's the, the word behind, or that's the idea behind the word listen. And we all know that. Your parents ask you, did you listen to me? And you say yes. And then you don't do what they said. You didn't listen to them, right? No, you didn't listen to me. That's the idea here. You go to your brother and they listen. They respond appropriately. But if not, if there is no acknowledgement, there is, or if there's stubbornness that remains, or even if there's more ill intent, what do you do? Well, you take another brother or two with you. And this principle comes directly out of the law of God. In Deuteronomy uh, 17 and also in Deuteronomy 19, this principle is given. A single witness shall not suffice against any person for a crime or a wrong in connection with an offense he's committed, but on the evidence of two witnesses or three shall a charge be established. So Jesus hasn't reinvented the wheel here. He's, he's applying this to his new followers. And the idea is to establish the, the seriousness of an offense. And sometimes that is required. Sometimes the person who has offended you is so close to you that you can't get through to them. Now, what do I mean by that? If you have marital trouble, often your spouse will not listen to you because they've grown accustomed to you giving them leeway and mercy, or they think they'll never leave. Or maybe they're, they know you're timid and you won't press this issue too much, or maybe they've grown so comfortable around you that they don't take you seriously anymore. 
Again, and that's one of the ways we despise our brothers and sisters when we won't hear them in their loving correction. So Jesus says, take a brother or two. And the principle here would obviously be that they're, they're credible people. They're good people, people with the same intention of restoration in mind. Now, the opposite of that, and here's something to watch out for, if, if you're bitter against somebody, don't surround yourself with others who will just commiserate in your bitterness. No, surround yourself with people who want the best in that situation as well. People who want restoration. Take them with you. And if your brother listens, you've won your brother. And the sphere has been broadened to only three or four people. But still, the intention there was that the brother would listen. But finally, and this does happen, in a case where the brother will not listen to even those two or three other credible, faithful witnesses, Jesus says, tell it to the church. Now, the word there for church is the one used throughout the New Testament. It's the word for assembly. And uh, Jesus hasn't taught all the details of how churches function and how local congregations are governed and ruled and how they work. Um, That would come later, mostly through the Apostle Paul. And we could say that Jesus does have us in mind here because two chapters ago, he told Peter and the disciples after Peter's confession that I will build my church. That's the first use of this word in the New Testament. Here's the next one. Tell it before the church, before the congregation. This is no longer just talking about an assembly in general or even just the assembly of Israel as the word is used in the Old Testament. But it is used of those who have come together because Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So with that in mind, it might become necessary if the brother continues in his stubbornness to take this before the assembly. Now, the purpose there is not to be a major gossip session. The purpose is the same as in step two and in step one, that the brother would hear, that he would listen, that he would repent and be restored, that the assembly together might witness against that person and say, you've got to look at what you're doing. You've got to see this through the Lord's eyes. You have to look at this in light of scripture. And that the person might no longer hide behind his personality or his comfort. But that that even would be a grace that brought him again to repentance. Now there's an example of this in 1 Corinthians 5. We won't read all of the details, but suffice it to say there was a man in the church at Corinth who is guilty of, of a public and heinous sin a sin that Paul said even the outsiders say that this shouldn't be done. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't hear the people's lament. He wouldn't, hear the, he wouldn't hear his brothers. So Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
Now, Paul uses strong language there to, to, to put somebody out, to deliver them even to the evil one for the destruction of the flesh. Why? Well, the intention is that the man might come to his senses and be saved. And also, Paul's language gets to the heart of the principle as well. When somebody is, is put out of a body of believers, there should be a feeling of weight there. Now, community in our day is, is not so functionally important as it was, for instance, in Paul's day and Jesus' day. Consider that, that some of these new believers would have been ousted from their homes and places of work because they followed Jesus. The community of believers then was would be everything to them. And if they had to be put out or excluded from that community then, where could they go? There would be a real sense of need for the body of Christ. Now, this is a side principle, but, but I hope you hear it. Do you have a real sense of need for your brothers and sisters? So that if for one reason or another, hopefully not this reason, but for any reason, if you have to be excluded or separated or apart from them, that there is a real sense of urgency, there's a real lack, there's a real emptiness there. Do you have a real sense of devotion and accountability and, and belonging and trust with your brotherhood? I hope you do. I hope that we live in such a way that it would be a frightful thought to have to be separated from our brothers and sisters in the Lord. But unfortunately, in our day, it's, it's more likely that somebody will depart and go down the road and find another church that doesn't know what's going on. Now, that's not a plight on other churches. The Lord works through all the local bodies of the Lord. But it is also important for churches and pastors to have good relationships. That's why I seek to, to fellowship with, with a whole bunch of other like-minded pastors in the area of, of various stripes, denominations, and even various theology. It's for the good of the whole body that we be unified in these things. And it's for the good of the straying person as well. Because if they're allowed to go on in their rebellion without ever facing it, it doesn't bode well for the reality of their relationship with Christ. That's why it's so important to be accountable to a group of believers. Here, we do that by way of, of church membership. You, you sign on, so to speak. You say, I'm going to partner with this group of people. I'm going to covenant with them together. I'm going to submit myself to them and they to me so that if something goes awry, they'll be the first ones to tell me about it. That kind of accountability is, is vital in the life of a Christian. If we exist as an island kind of floating in and out of, of the Christian community when it benefits us, then we lose opportunity for the grace of the Lord to come through in the lives of other believers who can speak into our lives, who can lovingly correct us, or who can say, good job, you're doing well. 
lives of others who can come alongside and help us in difficulty, lives of others whom we can come alongside and help in their times of difficulty. That kind of community and belonging is vital. The Lord didn't design his church to function as a bunch of disassociated individuals. He wants us to be together in his name, committed and accountable. And this passage before us is one of the very reasons for that. We read in verse number 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what's the idea here? There is a real separation that has to take place. If somebody has to be excluded from the body, if, if a group of Christians has to say, man, by your testimony and by your refusal to listen, we can't say that you're following Jesus anymore. And if that takes place, there is a real separation. There is a real acknowledgement that that person no longer places himself under Christ. They're on different terms now. But we also must remember, as Jesus said, to, to let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, we also must remember what Jesus' heart toward Gentiles and tax collectors are. Remember, one of the tax collectors is writing this gospel record. And the Lord had shown grace to him. And he reaches out to the outcast, to those who are outside of the body. He tells them, as we read in Matthew 11, as we sang this morning, to come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He calls out to the lowly, to the despised, and offers them grace. And in the same way, when somebody has, of their own admission, of their own refusal to repent, has said that I no longer believe this, may we not despise them and hate them, but may we treat them rather as somebody to be loved, to be witnessed to, that the gospel might penetrate their heart, that in them being put out for a time, they would sense the need to be again united with Christ through his body. There is grace and mercy even in this step. If you've been a part of a, a congregation who has had to do this, and you've had to remove somebody from the church roles, for instance, or exclude them. And if there was a spirit there then of, of bitterness, of wrath, of, of holier than thou, of, of anger and hatred toward that person, then that was not done in the spirit of Christ that is displayed here. We read on. Verse number 19, 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three are gathered on earth about or agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. There is a real sense that Christ gives his followers in the context of the, the church, the body, the responsibility to recognize someone as a believer or to recognize somebody that has left their faith. 
There is a real binding on earth that takes place when you, you covenant and hold yourselves accountable to a body of believers. And there is a real loosing that takes place when you have to regretfully say of someone, they've departed, they've left the faith. When a body of believers has to recognize that about somebody, that they're no longer a follower of Jesus, there is a reality to that that is true on both earth and in heaven. And if you're part of a biblical church that follows the Lord in this way, you should value that place in your life. The assembly of believers has a real authority granted by Christ to make this declaration. If done in the spirit of the Lord and following him, and when somebody repents, the body also has the authority granted by Christ to say, welcome back. When somebody repents and is restored, the the assembly also has much ability to comfort. That passage we read in 1 Corinthians about the man who had to be put out, well, it has a partner passage in 2 Corinthians. Now, almost all Bible teachers believe this is referring to the same individual. And Matt read this a little while ago, but I read it again. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, Paul says, but in some measure to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority, they they had to put him out, is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. And here's the idea. If somebody, even after all these steps are taken, Maybe years down the road, they come and repent. There should never be an attitude of, well, aren't you lucky that we let you back in here? No, there should be the attitude of comfort, of reaffirming love. To say, welcome, brother. We're so glad that the Lord has worked in your heart. Now, that's where this is headed. And quickly... I don't want to go too quickly, but Jesus gives a parable. We've seen if a brother sins against you and if he will not listen, but thirdly, we see if he seeks forgiveness. I want to let Jesus' words speak mostly for themselves here because they're very clear. But uh, Peter, after all this teaching, comes to Jesus and asks this question. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, we're often hard on Peter, but Peter asks the right question here. For one, he understood that Jesus' intention in all of this was forgiveness and repentance. And Peter's question simply had to do with the extent. How many times? Now, seven times would be four more times than what was typically required by the other rabbis of that day. The common teaching was that if somebody wrongs you three times in the same way, you don't forgive them the fourth time. So so Peter, was he was upping the ante there. Seven times, Lord? It was a good question. And Jesus, not chiding him, but simply going beyond, says to him in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 
And there's two ways to translate that. It can either be 77 or 70 times 7. But whether it's 77 or 490, the principle is that we are not to keep count. Our heart of forgiveness is to be such that we don't say, this time is too far. Our heart of forgiveness is to forgive as Christ forgives us. It is this kind of forgiveness. And then Jesus gives this parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Keep that in your mind. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That story is meant to be an unbelievably large display of forgiveness. I'm no mathematician. I'll have to have Frank Morgan check my math on this later. But a a talent was about 60 to 75 pounds of something usually used for gold or silver. And uh, if we get that Jesus' illustration here is is meant to be extreme, let's go that one talent is 75 pounds of gold. Well, 75 pounds of gold times 10,000 is a lot of gold. It would be equal in today's weights and measurements and today's value of an ounce of gold to be $14.6 billion in debt. Now, how would one person be almost $15 billion in debt to one other person? You almost couldn't imagine it. And that's the point. It's an unimaginable debt accumulated, which means it's an unimaginable debt forgiven. Can you imagine that amount of forgiveness? You can't imagine it yet. Here's the thing. Each one of us has been forgiven to that magnitude and more. If you have come to Christ in repentance, if you've heeded his call, believing in him and following him, then that is the magnitude of forgiveness that you receive. And that forgiveness is amazing. The psalmist tells us that it's as far as the east is from the west that the Lord removes our transgressions from us. And that's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do you hear the call of forgiveness? Now, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness does require both parties. The offending party does have to acknowledge their wrong in order for forgiveness to truly take place. It is a transaction. But even if the other person hasn't acknowledged their wrong yet, we are called to have a forgiving heart, to be ready to forgive. As soon as the person comes in repentance, 
We are to forgive them, whether for the first or the 50th time. And forgiveness doesn't always erase every consequence. Forgiveness doesn't always even mean that we're going to instantly forget the hurt. But forgiveness is saying, you are my brother in Christ. I don't hold this against you. But what if somebody never repents? What if they've wronged us and they never repent? What's our attitude toward them to be then? There's some helpful words in Romans 12, verse 19 and following. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you hear that? Even if somebody wrongs you and never repents, we are never to have a heart of retribution against them. Never a heart of revenge. Never a hatred. Never bitterness should should dwell within us. Never acting in malice, but in love. Even if they're our enemy. So that's what we do if somebody does listen. If they do come in repentance, we forgive. But the final part of the passage, and Jesus turns the script a little bit. What if, if we will not listen? What if somebody who has wronged us does come to us in repentance? But we refuse to listen to them. Hear the word of the Lord on this. Verse 28. Verse 28. When the same servant, the one who had been forgiven $14.6 billion of personal debt, when he went out, he found one of his his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. That's 100 days wages of worth of money. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The example here is of a calloused, uh, recalcitrant, unchanged heart. Again, the example is meant to be absurd. If, If you've been forgiven billions of dollars of debt, how could you not turn around and and forgive a few thousand dollars worth of debt? And the call here is simple yet strong. Do you have a heart of forgiveness? Has God forgiven you? 
And has his forgiveness transformed your heart in such a way that you freely forgive when somebody repents? Listen to the end of verse 35. That's that's the key to this. My heavenly father will do this to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. From your heart. When forgiveness exists in the heart by grace, it will flow out. Just like, as Jesus has said in other places, that out of the mouth proceed all kinds of things, lying and and debauchery and evil thoughts and murder. In the same way, a spirit of unforgiveness and bitterness reflects an unforgiven heart. The reality of who we are exists in our heart. By the Lord's grace, may we not find ourselves in the place of that servant who who would rather hold his debt over his fellow's head. Now, all of us have been guilty of that to some degree. We've all been in a place where we we sense that temptation to bitterness, where we say it would feel good just to hold this over their head for a while. And by the Lord's grace, hopefully that doesn't continue and you do forgive. But if your heart is continually unforgiveness, I call you to examine whether you've received the forgiveness of the Lord. Forgiveness is one of the evidences of a changed heart There is a connection between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. So with all that, here's a few points to take home to consider. The first one, the first one, have you received that mountain of forgiveness that Christ offers? Have you? Have you come to Christ? In faith, calling out in repentance, have you received that mountain of forgiveness? And if so, here's the second thing. When somebody sins against you, are you quick to make it right? Third, if someone lovingly corrects you, do you listen to them? When someone repents, do you forgive them from your heart? And finally, even if someone will not repent, do you harbor bitterness and anger against them? Or do you leave it to the Lord? May our Savior's heart of forgiveness come through in through his word today. May it shine through in our lives. May we exalt and rejoice in our own forgiveness that we've received from him. And from that would forgiveness flow from us as a stream of God's mercy.